1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi everybody and welcome back to our channel. Now I know you're here because you're like, wait a minute, Sean, you big silly liar person. I know that's a truth and I'm here to go. Don't ever question me ever. Question. You can check out our first list at the link below but in the meantime, welcome to Trek Culture, I'm Sean Ferrick and here are 10 more notorious Star Trek urban legends. Number 10. Star Trek featured the first interracial kiss on television. A lot has been said about the episode Plato's Stepchildren from the third series of the original series which of course featured the infamous kiss between James T Kirk and Lieutenant Uhura. There's been a lot said about whether the kiss actually happened or not with Nichelle Nichols saying it absolutely did fight me it may not have actually been the first interracial kiss on television. Now, there's a few contenders for this one. One includes a kiss between Sammy Davis Jr. and Nancy Sinatra. Now, that appeared on TV, but was actually a peck on the cheek. So there is a bit of argument as to whether that counts or not. Then you've got the effect of Mother and father of Star Trek, Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, who of course formed and owned the studio Desilu Studios, which gave Star Trek its boost. Desi Arnaz was in fact a Hispanic male, so the fact that they would, you know, kiss and embrace on TV would predate the kiss between Kirk and Uhura. However, he has also been described as a white male with Cuban ancestry, which has led to people kind of debating whether or not that counts as well. Frankly, there is one that outstrips them all. In 1959, actor Lloyd Bridges, who funnily enough was considered for the role of Kirk, shared a kiss with Nobu McCarthy on screen. Now, that was a full 10 years before Plato's Stepchildren aired, so much as we love Star Trek getting all the credit that it can, it doesn't get the credit for this one. Number nine, James Doohan created the Klingon language. Star Trek The Motion Picture features the redesigned Klingons for a cinematic age. We have Mark Leonard appearing as the Klingon captain of the new Katinga class battle cruiser, which is just cool. Still my favorite. I do like a bird of prey though. A lot has been said about James Dewan basically mimicking some of the sounds that Mark Leonard made and expanding it into a language, and that is partly true, but only partly. There was actually, it was a collaborative effort. James Dewan, along with producer John Povell and UCLA dialectician Hartwood Scarf, all worked together to create the languages for the film. Scarf, he designed the Vulcan language but he also started designing the Klingon language as well. However, Paramount weren't sold on what he delivered for the Klingon language. Scarf was of Germanic descent but he was really an expert on the Indian subcontinent of uh, languages and dialects which meant he wasn't able to capture what they were really looking for with the Klingon side of things. Although his Vulcan language, perfect, they loved that. Together with some of the groundwork that Scarf put into the Klingon language, with John Pavel and James Doohan, they together originated the language. Now of course, linguist Mark Ockrand, he expanded it to create the full Klingon dictionary which is actually cool and I will defend that to the ground. Number eight, NBC didn't want a woman on the bridge. The very first pilot of Star Trek, The Cage, features Jeffrey Hunter, Majel Barrett, and Leonard Nimoy as Captain Pike, number one, and Mr. Spock, respectively. As we know, that pilot didn't sell, but, Star Trek was given a lifeline when they were told to go and reshoot the pilot. Now between the cage and where no man has gone before there are some notable differences. The character of Spock goes through some big changes. He goes from a more feeling alien to the Vulcan that we're a little bit more used to today. We also notice that he's been bumped up in rank to the first officer and Major Barrett's number one is nowhere to be seen. The common myth is that NBC said, we do not want a woman on the bridge, especially in a position of power like that. That's not actually true. The problem, I'm sorry to say, was Majel Barrett. NBC didn't believe that she had the acting chops to carry the role of first officer on the ship. Therefore, when they were giving their edicts of what needed to be changed, such as Spock's satanic appearance and Major Barrett, in general, Gene Roddenberry knew he was going to dig his heels in and fight for Spock, but he was happy enough to move Major Barrett into a much more supporting role, which is where Christine Chapel came from. Number seven, Roddenberry's homophobia kept gays out of the final frontier. Gene Roddenberry himself has gone on record and said that as a younger man, he was homophobic. He used homophobic slurs. He used. He knew exactly what he was saying when he said it. And at the time, he didn't see much of an issue with it. However, as he grew older, he began to mellow and he began to understand different walks of life, different orientations, different ways of being, which, of course, informed an awful lot of what was written for Star Trek. Then it is notable that it was only after Gene Roddenberry died that gays in general began turning up in Star Trek and of course that happened over a very long period of time with episodes like The Host, The Outcast being tentative steps and then of course Rejoined being a good step forward but then almost nothing until Star Trek Discovery. It wasn't Roddenberry that was keeping them out of the final frontier. He had said as early as the 80s that he did plan to have gay people serving in his new spin-off series, which was the then upcoming Star Trek: The Next Generation. Now the problem. Was his lawyer, Leonard Mazlish. He is the one directly responsible for blocking David Gerald's script, Blood and Fire. David Gerald was, of course, the author who wrote the original series episode, The Trouble with Tribbles. Blood and Fire has gone on to be made as part of the extended universe of Star Trek as a fan production, but the fact is, it was made as an allegory for the ongoing AIDS epidemic of the 80s and the early 90s and Maizlish completely shut it down. He did so in a very direct, very offensive manner. There was no hiding the fact that Maizlish didn't want any of that gay stuff in Star Trek. Since then there has been many accusations pointed at many different people at the top of that era of Star Trek about why gay people weren't as a part of the final frontier until much later on but for the purposes of this entry alone this is leveled directly at Leonard Mazlish, his blocking of the script of Blood and Fire and the delay for the next almost 20 years in
1: Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: plushcare.com slash weight loss. Number six, Ricardo Montalban wore a fake chest. Now, this is one of the classic urban legends of Star Trek that Ricardo Montalban couldn't possibly have had that chest in Wrath of Khan. Oh no, 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 there's no way. There was silicone going on, something like 152 seasons of RuPaul's Drag Race has taught me everything about breastplates and chest plates and all of that. Easy, easy, silicone, no, no, total nonsense. The man, much like myself, just hopped down and just did press-ups every single day while he was getting ready for the film. The man was a legend. He of course had been working on Fantasy Island for years before Star Trek The Wrath of Khan came along. So he said in interviews that he had to struggle to get back into character. It had been so long since he had played Khan in that episode, Space Seed. However, in rewatching the episode, reading the script and being so angry at the sheer amount of working out he had to do. Yeah, I understand his wrath in that one. But you can debunk that right now. If you were to prick that chest, it would bleed. Number five, Patrick Stewart was originally going to wear a wig. There is a modicum of truth to this one because when Patrick Stewart was introduced to Gene Roddenberry originally to read for the role of Captain Picard, Roddenberry, he was a bit shocked because this Shakespearean British actor was not what he had imagined to play his French captain of the enterprise thankfully obviously Patrick Stewart won him around by simply being Patrick Stewart but another issue that Roddenberry had was he at the time couldn't imagine his lead his captain as being bald as part of his work for the Royal Shakespeare Company Patrick Stewart had already commissioned a wig for various roles on stage and so he got that FedExed out to LA and he turned up wearing the wig one day they agreed that no 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 no. this man is good enough we don't need the wig let's basically take a run with this Gene Roddenberry signed off on it so there was never after seeing the wig there was never a plan to have Picard with hair before seeing the wig yes maybe thankfully obviously Patrick Stewart won the hearts and minds of everyone, including Roddenberry himself, because when asked by an interviewer uh, along the way whether, by the 24th century, humanity wouldn't have cured baldness, Roddenberry quipped back, by the 24th century, humanity wouldn't care. Number four, Dr. Sauron hated Kirk, Trek, and everything in between. Again, this is one that has elements of truth, which is what has led to this story. When Malcolm McDowell was originally cast in Star Trek Generations, it did take four goes to get the man to sign on. He has been very open about the fact that it was a paycheck film. You can't blame the man for that. You would love every single person who's ever filmed for Star Trek to love the franchise, but the truth is That's simply not the case. He did make a very interesting statement. He said that at the end of the day, it didn't really matter whether he loved the script or not. He said that once the Trek treadmill started going, Trekkies were gonna jump on regardless of the quality of the film or, you know, the perceived quality of the script. His statement has been somewhat tested from, J.J. Abrams reboot of the franchise in 2009 to the arrival of Star Trek Discovery to Star Trek Picard and even Lower Decks and there has been many vocal oppositions to people call it New Trek Kurtzman era Star Trek whatever you want to call it there has been a lot of Trekkies who are very not on board with this era of Star Trek and to each their own to each their own McDowell himself he never hated Star Trek. He just commented really on the fact of it wasn't massively important what the actors thought at the end of the day, which in a way is good because he did confess to his nephew, Alexander Sedig, that he did think the script for Generations was shit. Number three, Jordi was going to be revealed as a half alien. By the time Star Trek The Next Generation got to the seventh season, There was a feeling behind the scenes that the show was running out of steam. When they got to the episode Interface, Ronald D. Moore felt that by introducing Geordie's mother, they were really scraping the bottom of the barrel. Jerry Taylor also commented on the fact that there had been plans originally to reveal that the reveal of Geordie's family was gonna show that he was not actually fully human, that he was only half human. In a way, they touched on this in the fourth season episode, Identity Crisis, the incredibly creepy episode where Geordie starts mutating into an alien life form after coming into contact with them years before. In the end, they elected not to go this route because it was a bit of a late in the day reveal, they felt. However, they did recycle some of the elements of this story into the Star Trek. Voyager episode Favourite Son where Harry Kim is revealed to be half alien and from the Delta Quadrant and of course I can see no problem with that story whatsoever trilogy of terror number two Roddenberry was with Star Trek the whole time unfortunately this one just ain't true And I don't even mean when he was bumped to executive consultant on the films. When Star Trek was coming up to the end of its second season, they were facing cancellation and thankfully, a letter-writing campaign organized by superfan Joe Trimble managed to save the show and bring it back. But, that all-important but. Roddenberry said that he would only come back as long as the show got the budget it deserved and a time slot it deserved. He was ignored completely. Star Trek was given the death slot of Friday nights at 10, and that really was the beginning of the end for the show. However, Roddenberry took this as a bit of a personal insult, which in a way it was. He left the show and was not involved in the third season of Star Trek, other than to contribute to a few things here or there, but he was not by any means showrunner. No, Fred Freiberger was showrunner for the third season, which is unfortunately history has shown us a dubious honor. Season three is rough. Unfortunately, it was Fred Freiberger who oversaw Star Trek as it went into its decline and eventual cancellation, not Roddenberry. Now, Roddenberry would not come back on as an official showrunner until the next generation. And even then, unfortunately, but this is more due to health, he was only involved for the first couple of years. Number one, there was only one Gene. That one, completely false. Gene L. Kuhn is a name that every Trekkie should know as much as they know Gene Roddenberry. Gene L. Kuhn was brought on as a basically a script doctor as the show went on, but he also was a writer himself and under his tenure, Some vaguely important elements were added to Star Trek. The United Federation of Planets. Khan Noonien Singh. Starfleet Command. The Prime Directive. William Shatner attributes all of these to Coon in his novel, Star Trek Memories. Now Kuhn would eventually leave after the second season, basically citing exhaustion as the reason, but he did contribute to a couple of scripts in the third season under a pseudonym of Lee Cronin as well. But he was, if not as important as Gene Roddenberry in getting Star Trek going, he was certainly as important when it came to shaping Star Trek as we know it today. Some of the most important tenets of the franchise were created under his watch, and with his pen. Gene L. Coon, guys, remember that name.
1: Hey, folks. I'm Mark Maron from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft tissues